All right, well, we are in Mark chapter 9. Today we're going to look at verse 30 through 37, but I just wanted to remind us of a few events that have come in the recent past uh, that actually set this whole section up very well, I think. Now, if you recall back before I went into chapter 8, um, I, I, if you guys remember before I, I got into that section, I said that, that I was approaching 8 and 9 with some fear and trembling with some trepidation. Uh, I was nervous not only for myself, but for all of you, for what it was that we were going to hear. And and this section today personifies exactly that. Now, what happened? Now, if we go back, we know that Peter finally, (laughs) finally, recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And so because he and the disciples have come to that understanding, Jesus then says, okay, well, now I'm going to give you a little more. And he explains exactly what the Messiah is going to go do. And what did Peter do? He rebuked the Lord. And that word rebuked is the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes an unclean spirit. The spirit in Jesus Christ, according to Peter, is unclean and must be cast out. So Jesus rebukes Peter. Then they go on to a mountain. And and the true glory of heaven, the true glory that is Christ's, is revealed. And Peter, who doesn't know what to say, says, hey, let's go camping. They come down from that mountain. And then what happens? Well, they find the, the disciples arguing with the scribes because the disciples can't do the very thing that Jesus has equipped them to do, which is to cast out a demon. And so in, there in front of everybody, Jesus calls the disciples to task and, and lumps them together with the scribes and says, you're, you're just an unbelieving generation. And the father who brought the boy with the demon, he's the only one who is wrestling in the story with Jesus because he comes to Jesus and he says, listen, I don't know if you can help me, but help me. Jesus says, who, <laughs> if I can help you, what are you talking about? And, he, and then he utters one of the most famous lines that we all love. I believe, help my unbelief. And then it c- come to find out, the disciples are failures. The disciples can't do what God gave them the ability to do because they aren't praying. Because they think they have the power in themselves. And so there is this wrestling match between the disciples and Jesus. <laughs> and the disciples are ready to tap out. They're saying, uncle, over and over again, please just make this end. Now, if you had brothers or, or a father who liked to wrestle, I had both when I was a kid. Sometimes when you're saying uncle, they just hurt you more, <laughs> right? They've got you right where they want you. And so the, the, the key was always to never, no matter how bad you're getting hurt, say uncle, because then they were just going to double down on the pain. Well, it, and <laughs> Jesus' idea here, he wants to put to death the things in the disciples that ought to be put to death. And to a certain extent, he's like a shark who smells blood in the water. He's not backing out. He understands there, there is pain going on, but that doesn't get him to, to back off. It gets him to go harder. He's the good older brother. Right? He serves the good father who, who applies the pressure and keeps applying the pressure until he gets the result that he's looking for. So that's what we have seen up to this point, is this great wrestling match. But unfortunately, the disciples are backing away. They're backing away. They don't, right? As it's progressed, they've gotten quieter and quieter and quieter. And so today, we're going to look at round three. And who do you think is going to win round three? Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you uh, for bringing us here into the midst of your household. We know that your son is loving. We know that your son is humble. And we know that your son is dangerous. We like easy, safe selfishness. And so it is very difficult to listen to Jesus. It is very difficult to follow him. It is very difficult uh, to, to live as he lived. And we pray, Lord God, that this morning that you would expose our cowardice, that you would expose those things that we fear and those things that make our hearts anxious, and that you would expose our lack of faith, that we may come forward and cry out, that we might grapple with Christ, and, and by doing so become ourselves lions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 30, chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know. The reason for the secrecy was not to escape from Herod. It's not to escape the teachers of the law. Jesus is not afraid of either of those groups. But he wants to escape from the crowd. Remember, all through this gospel, this crowd is hounding him, this crowd that just wants what they want. They want miracles, and they want magic, and they, and they don't care if Jesus eats. They don't care if Jesus sleeps. They don't care about what Jesus is saying. They just want Jesus' gifts. And this is a crowd that he's, he, he distanced himself from long enough to teach the disciples the things that they really need to learn. According to Mark, Jesus' public ministry in Galilee was over. It has come to an end. The trip through Galilee was the first leg of a journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. Jesus is shifting here. It's no longer big public displays, big public sermons, big public um, education. It's not about that anymore. He's, He's receding now because things are getting very dangerous, and he is on the way to the cross. It says, I think in Luke, that he set his face towards Jerusalem at this time. And that's what he's doing now. He doesn't want crowds. He's got, a place, he's got somewhere to be at a certain time, and he's now focused on getting there. Jesus' intention that his presence in Galilee should be unrecognized reflects not only his desire to instruct the disciples without interruption, but it also shows that he has a deeper appreciation and a deeper sense of his purpose. You know, it says in the beginning of Luke, he grew in wisdom. And, and as things go here, it, there is something that we have to remember about Jesus. He is a man. And to a certain extent, the things that he comes to understand about himself and the Father and his role and, and what he is called to do, he comes to understand it on a deeper and deeper and deeper level. And it's once he really wraps his mind around <laughs> What it is he's got to do, that's when we see him crying out in Gethsemane, asking God for another way. So what we see here is Jesus is he's coming to terms himself with what it is he knows now that he has to do. So in verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Jesus is training the apostles, who will be later training the church once Christ is enthroned. This is leadership development. This is personal instruction. This is oversight and guidance in equipping the soon-to-be frontline leaders in what Jesus is focused on. There's two things that he does. He does. He has a public ministry and a private ministry. And his public ministry is when he's on the Sermon on, right, Sermon on the Mount, he's standing on a mountain, and he's preaching to everyone about the law. And then he has a private ministry where he sits down, he, the, the select group, 
those that have, have not been have not gone astray, given the difficult things that he said, those who get closer and closer to him, he sits them down and he explains things in more detail because they're the ones who are going to have to go and explain it in detail to others. He's not interested in crowds. (laughs) Crowds are not necessarily indicative of success in spiritual work. Unlike what you will read in most Christian book sections on church growth methodologies, right? The crowd is where it's at. Jesus does not think the crowd is where it's at. Jesus generally regarded crowds as a signal to move on. Right? The crowd gets too big and he's like, well, I'm moving on. I got to go. So he gets on a boat at night and he travels somewhere else. Or, as he does in John 6, he purposely, purposely instructs the crowd in, in things that are difficult to understand and in a way that turns a lot of people off. You guys know John 6? Unless you eat my flesh, you have no part of me. Um, so we're cannibals now? I thought we drove all the pagans out of this place. Jesus, what are you talking about eating your flesh? And a whole bunch of people who didn't like what he had to say left. And, and, and again, this is very different than how we typically think the gospel should be, pre- right? Or oh, it should be cl- as clear as crystal. It, it, it should draw people in. <laughs> right? Jesus looks around the crowd and goes, man, it's getting really hard to eat a tuna fish sandwich with all these people. Uh, yeah, yeah, unless you eat my flesh, you have no part of me. Half the, more than half the crowd departs. Because why? What are all those people? We've, we've seen it again and again. What do all those people want? They, they don't want their back to hurt. Right? They want their leprosy to go away. A lot of them don't really believe in him. They just want what he's got to give. Sadly, this is a lot of churches. This is a lot of Christians. But what he's doing isn't un- what, unlike what God has always done. Right? Remember Judges chapter 7? <laughs> There's a judge leading an army, and it's big. And God's like, well, you know, this size of, the size of this army, people are going to think it wasn't me. They're going to think it was you. So he says, okay, go down to this river, and anybody who isn't smart enough to lift the water to their mouths like a person, anybody who goes down and laps the water like a dog, that's who I want. So he, he makes his army smaller. You guys remember this story? This is exactly what Jesus does again and again and again. Because quality, not quantity, is the point. The test of true success are the, is the little group of disciples who remain after the very difficult things have been said. But that's not when he suddenly starts saying easy things. Right? He, he drives a lot of people away by very difficult things. And what Peter demonstrates in that story in John 6 is that he doesn't get it either. He's like, well... When Jesus asks, he's like, I don't really understand what you're saying, but you have the words of life. I don't get it, but I'm going to stay. Because you clearly are someone, right? You're, you're where it's at. I want to be closer to you. I don't get what you're saying, but what you're saying is truer than what everyone else is saying. And this is what Jesus wants. A withdrawal to where Jesus may be questioned in private by the disciples is very common. We've seen it again and again and again. He goes into a big public place. He says a bunch of things. And then they they go off in someone's house. So they go along the way and they're camping or they're in the boat. And he starts giving them personal instruction. Broad proclamations and intimate teaching should be the description of a church's ministry. Now, what is it that Jesus is doing here? He's adding to his passion prediction. He's already told them that he's going to suffer and die, and that has freaked everybody out. They don't understand what he's saying. In, in this, he adds a couple of interesting phrases. One of them is what we're going to focus on today. The, the rise in three days we're going to come back to. 
Today, we, I want to really drill down on this phrase that he uses that at, at first, I, don't, I think it just, our eyes pass over it. But it, it is a phrase that is used, and the way that it's used and what it really means is very helpful and instructive to us in what the Christian life is. To deliver up, to hand over. Right? Jesus is going to be handed over to men. And you think, oh, okay, well, I mean, okay. I, I've read the Bible. I understand what this means. This means Judas Iscariot is going to go and sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, correct? Right? That's what it must mean. And, and there is some truth to that, but <laughs> this is the point of my old sermon. Yes, that phrase is true. And generally, most of us who have read the Bible at all are like, oh, okay, that's what it means, and we move on. But there's so much more to this phrase. 2 Samuel 24, 14. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back into the Old Testament, and I'm going to look at some verses that were, because they had a Greek version of the Old Testament. And, and, and they would, it's very helpful because they would use words in Greek in the Old Testament in certain places that then when the New Testament writers would use the same word, it helps us connect points in the Old Testament to points in the New Testament. And this is what it says in 2 Samuel 24, 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Let me not be delivered up to the hands of men. Right? And David's not a great guy. He's great in God's eyes. But for, for the rest of us to be like, I don't know. I would rather, you're a mighty man, David. I would rather go to the hands of men if I were you. Because you're a sinner. But the hands of wicked men. That's something that David, this is why he has a heart after God's. He understands how disgusting and filthy man is. He would rather fall into the hands of an angry God who's just, who's merciful, who's gracious, than to fall into the hands of men. Into the hands of men reinforces the concept of God's abandonment. That's what this is about. Jesus isn't saying that Judas is going to turn him over to the hands of men. He's talking about what God's purpose is for him. God's purpose is to hand him over to wicked men. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 23 through 25. This is what we read. And if by this discipline, this is God talking to Israel, and if by discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Shall be turned over to the enemy. If you if you ignore the obedience, if you ignore the signs to turn back, which is repentance, if you are ignoring the signs and the and the things that God is doing to get you to repent, what He is going to do is turn you over to the enemy. And right, we should be like, right? If you are like David, you say, No, 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 I would rather fall into the hands of God. Christ actually echoes this section from Leviticus later in Mark, chapter 14, verse 41. And Jesus came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. To deliver is to hand over. And this is a crucial act of the triune God. 
who is directing history in the lives of every individual person. For God to hand over a sinner is for God to condemn him and to curse him and to abandon him. If warnings go unheeded, if God's work to lead you to repentance goes unheeded, he gets out of the way and turns you over. It's like, hey, I've been standing here on the road trying to get you to turn around. Now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get out of the way. Go for it, Bucky. Have at it. You want to go that way? I'm not going to stop you. And that's what hell is. That's what hell is. You don't want to be with me? You don't have to be with me because I'm very gracious. <laughs> right? I've been trying to convince you it's a good idea to fall into my hands and not the hands of sinners. But you're not listening, and so I'm not going to stand in your way. This is what Romans 1 is all about. This word, hand over, comes up again and again, but in Romans, it's translated as gave them up. But it's the same word. Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Romans 1.26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Romans 1.28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay, Romans 1, I get it. They're idol worshipers. They don't thank God. They don't acknowledge God. right? They, they want to exchange the natural uses of a man and woman for the unnatural uses of men and women. And so God says, fine. Why is he doing it to his son? In Romans 1, you're like, yeah, hand them over. Boom. But you're going to hand over Jesus? You're going to get out of the way and let... Whatever comes, comes to Jesus. Romans 4, 23 through 25. Jesus, our Lord, who was handed over for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up, turned himself over for us. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Both verses refer to Jesus as handing himself over because it was the Father's will. It was the Father's will to hand him over. To be turned over to the hands of men and the wrath of God is the sacrificial love that secures your salvation and my salvation. John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life and I take it up again. It's his will to turn me over, and you know what? It's my will to be turned over. And there is a crucial thing here that we have to learn. This is what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand, and they refuse to understand it. Grace hurts harder than hell. Think about that. Grace hurts harder than hell. What's grace? It's the favor of God. It's God's favor. It's God's love. And he freely, you want it, he will give it to you, and it will be rich and beautiful and deep, more so than you could possibly imagine. But you have to understand it hurts. And this is the kind of stuff he says all the time that, that brings us to silence, brings us to stupefied silence. Think about this. Hell is what? Hell is a separation. You don't want to be with God. You don't have to be with God. And you go there, and it's a lake of eternal hellfire, and that's where you exist forever, right? And, and there is a separation. But these two people who are separated, God and the sinner, they didn't want to be together anyway. 
Now that sounds painful, right? But on the cross were two people who wanted nothing but to be together. To have something and to not lose it, to be worthy of something and lay it down, to be deprived of something that is rightfully yours for the sake of others. Versus hell, where you just you get what you wanted anyway. Which one hurts more? And, and this is the thing that stops us. This is the thing that gives us pause. This is the thing that brings us to silence before God. If, if you have God's favor, what are you talking about, Jesus? What are you talking about being handed over? What are you talking about dying to yourself? What are you talking about pain and suffering? God's favor means what? Riches, right? Favor, right? Favor is positive, isn't it? This is why in verse 32 it says, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. He's brought them to utter silence. He says, guys, listen, grace hurts harder than hell. And they're standing there and they're looking at him and they don't understand what he's saying. And they're so afraid of what he's saying and they're so anxious about what he's saying, they don't even want to ask him a question to clarify now because what's happened? Well, Peter, you know, he talked back. What happened to him? You know, just now in front of everybody, he took us up and he lambasted us and called us, right, faithless in front of everybody. And now he's talking about this. I don't know what he's talking about. And so I'm just going to follow him. He said follow him. He didn't say ask questions. So I'm just going to follow him. And their lack of faith and their lack of discernment and their lack of understanding brings them to anxious, ignorant silence. Now, and if that doesn't describe the church today, I don't know what does. We have forgotten something that's important. We have misunderstood what it is we're called to. This is what we're called to. This is what we're called to. Genesis chapter 32, verse 24 through 28. (laughs) The original bad boy. The one that everyone misunderstands from Genesis. Everybody thinks this guy is evil. Everybody thinks this guy is wicked. But let's read about our friend Jacob. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. That's the Christian life. You want greatness. You want to be near to God. You want his grace. It hurts. It hurts. Now we go back. What do we know? We know that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. If you go and you read about Esau, you're like, well, Esau had a lot of wives. Esau had a lot of sheep. Right? He was the older brother. He had his father's favor. And and Isaac is is his father. So if, if he's the one who's favored by Isaac... And then you go and you read in Romans that God, God hates Esau and loves Jacob. You're like, um, okay, God, I'm not sure if we're reading the same story, right? But Jacob, wait, what do we all know about Jacob? He, he's a trickster and a liar. And he wants this sister, but he gets that sister. And then he ends up with both sisters and doesn't really love one of them. And then they get into this kind of weird marriage politics that I can't even imagine, 
And then he flees at night. Then he sends his wife and his children on ahead of him. And, and at what point does this guy seem like the one who God loves? And then God comes to him and says, all right, let's wrestle. And in the midst of the wrestling, he cripples him. <laughs> and then in the end, he's the one who receives the blessing. That doesn't make any sense to me. But you know what it makes sense to? Jesus. Because Jesus God loved, and was he crippled? Right? Does his life look more like Jacob's or more like Esau's? Did, did Jesus have privilege? Did Jesus have position? Did Jesus have riches? Did Jesus have the favor of his earthly father? Right? The sons of promise. Did they prefer Jesus? No. No, not at all. True godly men wrestle with their internal fears. They wrestle with the things in this world that they do not understand. They wrestle with other men. Truly godly men don't remain passive. They don't remain quiet. And they don't remain aloof. Now let's think about this for a moment. <laughs> I've got sons and I, I, I've had to learn how to do this. And I, I've actually learned it partially from this story. How does God wrestle with a man and the man in any way, shape, or form even survive, let alone prevail. Well, this is, I was just asked this question recently by one of my older sons. He says, how is it that Lewis always beats you? Right? I mean, Lewis, I can, I can literally pick him up with one hand and touch the, touch the ceiling with him several times. And if I wanted, I could probably pitch him about a good 10 yards. And yet we get down on the floor and he's got my arm behind my back and my face is in the carpet. Because there's a way to wrestle with boys that makes them stronger. There's a way to wrestle with boys where they prevail. Like, I'm a little afraid of wrestling the three older ones all by themselves. Because over the years, <laughs> there's been ways that we do this. I like to sit out pillows and foam things, like on the ground where we're wrestling, because I want them to understand that they pick up anything they can and start hitting the person in the face with it. Because if they ever get into a real fight, that's <laughs> Right? Oh, a beer bottle? Right? What's here? A pool cube? Let's go for it. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> and there is a way to grapple with them where they become manlier, where they become tougher, right? Oh, look, you skidded your knee, and now you need to put Band-Aids on. Because sometimes when we're done wrestling, there, there's Anne-Marie with a little kit. It's like, all right, what do I got to sew up? And, and what you get in the end are tougher boys. And, and God's like, okay. Right? You, you don't know better than I do. This is how you make a tough son. And you go and you wrestle with him, even if you cripple him. Because he strives with you. He doesn't back away in fear. He doesn't sit there in silence like the disciples saying, I wonder what this means. I don't know. I don't want to be yelled at again. And we don't want sons like that. We don't want daughters like that. That are quiet. That are fearful. That are silent. Godly children pursue him. Godly children know that he's dangerous, but they know that he's safe. They know that he's good. I'm sorry, I messed that up. He's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. <laughs> what kind of father cripples a son to make him stronger? Well, the living God does. The living God. And, 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 and that's what we go into the scriptures, we go to our knees in prayer. We hang around other believers, and what happens? We hear things that, I, I, I want the favor of God, but I don't want anything painful. I don't want anything uncomfortable. I don't want anything hard. And the thing that Jesus is trying to do is kill the very thing inside of you, and he'll do whatever it takes to do that. 
He's there on the mat, right? <laughs> God takes his shirt off. He puts some chalk on his hands. He's like, all right, read Romans. Let's do this. Let's go a few rounds. But that's not at all how we think about it. Who, who picks up the Bible and opens it up and says, okay, God, let's go a few rounds? Right? Doesn't it almost seem irreverent to talk that way? But I imagine Jacob, who's so misunderstood, he sees Jesus there, he sees this giant strapping angel, and he's like, all right, all right, all right, I took Laban. I even took my old man Isaac. I'll take this guy too. And that's not how we think about him. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He goes into the desert, and he sees the devil. He's like, all right, let's do this. You, you want to do, whew, quote, scripture verses? Let's do this thing. He sees illness. He sees brokenness. He sees the fallenness of man, and he never backs away. He's never fearful, and he's never silent. He strives, and then he goes all the way to the cross. He knows what's coming. It's going to be crippling. It's going to be death. But he understands that grace hurts, but that grace is God's favor. Right? What comes at the end? A crown. And, and this is the thing over and over and over. Christians cannot hear this enough. You want a crown? Here's the cross. That's what he's been saying. You want to be with me? Die to yourself. You want to come this way? It's going to be painful. But at the end, what you get is a crown of life. What you get is the favor of the Lord. Because what's inside of you that is holding you back, what's inside of you that makes you unworthy is the thing that has to die. And that's what feels the pain. right? The pure heart inside of you, the pure spirit inside of you, the thing that's being made holy and perfect that will live forever is not the thing inside of you that hurts when you're struggling with God. It's all of the other stuff that needs to go away. It's the pride. It's the ego. It's the desire to be somebody in this world. And that is exactly what's going on with the disciples. That's why they're not listening, because what are they talking about on the road? They hear Jesus. <laughs> Peter, you going to say something? Well, if Peter's going to be quiet, I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> right? I don't understand what Jesus is saying. He's talking nonsense again. He says, let's go, let's go. Fine, we'll go. And we'll hang back just slightly from him. And the conversation I really want to have is who do you think amongst us is greatest? I don't think it's Peter because Peter got rebuked pretty hard. right? There's Matthias or somebody in the back going, I didn't get yelled at. right? You always notice it with the kids. You're giving one kid you know, a really hard time, the other kid starts acting like, hee-hee, I'm the best. Well, I'm more faithful than you because I, <laughs> he never rebuked me. Right? He never rebuked me. This is, I love this. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what, what were you discussing on the way? I just had, this happened to me the other day. I'll say his name, Titus. Hey, Titus, what are you doing? Nothing. Silence. You know why? Because he's doing something he wasn't supposed to. Right? Whenever there's that much silence, it's the same same thing all the time, right? I'm watching a, um, say I'm watching a movie when I should be getting work done. Wife comes in the room, what are you doing? Right, what do I, nothing. You get silence. Jesus says, what were you discussing on the way? 34, but they kept silent. Right? That's, as a parent, you know you got them right where you want them. 
Because if they were doing what they were supposed to do, they would tell you they were doing something they were supposed to do. What I like is you catch them so off guard sometimes they can't even formulate a lie. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, this word argument is, I mean, they were really debating this hotly. They were debating it like church music. They were really going toe-to-toe, round and round. Who's the best? Who's the best? Who's better? I'm better. You're better? No, you're not better. I'm better. And just imagine like a bunch of little baby kids walking along. Well, I'm going to have a bigger car than you. <laughs> right? This is the conversation as kids in the back. Well, I can, I can, I'll be able to afford that car. You don't know if you're going to be a manager at McDonald's taking the bus. You don't know. You're bragging about the future. You don't know what you're talking about. And this is how kids act, right? They want to know who the greatest is. Forget what Jesus is saying. Forget what Jesus is talking about, where Jesus is going. We don't understand. All I really care about is how awesome I am. Now, <laughs> they really are concerned about it because, I mean, if Jesus is who they think he is, he's going to be somebody pretty important. Right? Caesar, the original Caesar, Julius Caesar, the people who, were, who helped him accomplish what he accomplished as the first emperor of Rome were themselves kings and emperors. Right? We understand necessarily why they're doing this. And, and in our culture, it's very different because we have a very egalitarian culture. But in their day, if you couldn't, right, this, people are impressed by Paul's Roman citizenship because the man who's judging him had to buy his. So if you had money, you could actually buy station in life. These, these gentlemen are following Jesus, thinking they're going to get status in life without actually having to do anything to earn it. Simply ride the coattails to the top. <laughs> so what were you guys talking about? Nothing. You get nothing. Utter silence. Is, is this what Jesus wants from his disciples? Right? Even when he, I mean, does he not know? He knows what they were talking about. When he comes to you, right? When you have that sudden conflict, this sudden realization, oh, Jesus is actually omnipresent, and he just saw me do that. And, right? This is like Adam in the garden. Well, where, where are you? I can't. I can't see you. And, and what did Adam do? He hid. What did the disciples do? They remained silent. And this is all too often the reaction of most of us. We get to verse 35, and it says this, And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He sat down. I like this phrase because... This is actually, in their culture, some, this is serious business. When, when the teacher sits, it's like he sits in judgment, right? It's like the professor comes into the room and takes out the, the chalk, and he starts writing on the chalkboard. It's time now to learn a little something, kids. Class is in session. The judge is sitting in the judge's seat. Right? I remember this from the courthouse. All rise... <laughs> we're all standing there and there's the attorneys and there's me and we're just drinking our coffee and we're chit-chatting and I hear this little, there was this little signal there's a little light down here and I, I jump out of my, all rise everyone, it becomes silent in the courtroom and, and, and really we have a hard time understanding but this is what it means Jesus sits and it gets even quieter because he's not just like he's standing around in the water cooler having a chit-chat with them He's going to sit in judgment now of them. 
One interpretation of this saying of Jesus is the spiritual principle that those who desire or grasp at spiritual position will condemn themselves as punishment to the lowest place in the kingdom. I heard this story one time, this pastor did this at the end of it. <laughs> he preached this whole sermon on him who will be last will be first. <laughs> he said, all right, I'm going to do something I don't usually do. We're going to depart all together now. So everyone line up at the door. Right? Everybody gets up and goes over. And, and people are like scrambling to the front. And, and then the whole church lines up. And he walks over here to this exit door and opens it. He says that clearly we're not listening. <laughs> Right? But this is what I'm talking about. The first one to the car is the last one to the car. The one who hung back and didn't care to push themselves forward. Right? And this is, we are all, right? We will listen to a sermon like this and we will go out and we will do exactly the thing that we just were convicted about doing sitting there in those seats. This is what Mary's song is about. Luke 1, 51 through 53. The Lord has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. God's way of working is to put down the mighty from their thrones as much as it is to exalt those of low degree. The question of precedence among the disciples is resolved by the authoritative declaration of Jesus. This surprising reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank is a practical application of the great commandment of love for one's neighbor and a reaffirmation of the call to self-denial, which is the precondition for following Jesus, back in chapter 8, verse 34. Now, in chapter 8, verse 34, the formulation was, whoever wishes to come after me, Right? What, what must you do? Whoever wishes to come after me must... There you go. In this, chapter 9, verse 35, it says, whoever wishes to be first. And, and the similarity in language is supposed to make a connection in, in their minds if they're listening. The order of life for the disciples and their relationship to each other is to be the service of love. You, you want to argue about who's greatest? Outdo one another in serving one another. Outdo one another in glorifying the others. And this is a principle they have not yet learned. By transforming the question of greatness into task orientation of service, Jesus is establishing a new pattern for human relationships, which leaves no occasion for strife or or opposition toward one another over place of position. The point of suffering is here located in the service to be accomplished, where service means specifically sacrifice for others. The deeper principle will be, if we desire spiritual greatness, then what we truly desire is the task of service to others. Do you want to be great in Redeemer Church? (laughs) I mean, this is what I always love about these questions. First off, have you ever asked yourself that? You want to be great here in Redeemer? A little false humility? Oh, of course not. Why not, actually? This is the first question. Why not? <laughs> Why don't you want to be great in Redeemer? We'll put that aside for a moment. Now, if you want to be great in Redeemer, how do you go about doing it? Coming up here and wrestling me for the mic? <laughs> yeah, we'll do it. Come on. Yeah, you want to be the greatest here? Come on. Right? Because everybody, I think, naturally assumes the guy up here with the microphone 
right, in the library. He's paid to do it. He must be the great... No. <laughs> no. No. No, 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 no. I am not the greatest servant in this church. Not by a long stretch. Do you want to be great at Redeemer? How do you go about doing it? Humility is not a natural virtue to any of us. Few qualities are more unpopular in the self-assertive world of the first century or the 21st century than humility. Right? We ought to desire to be great in the kingdom of God. We ought to desire to be great in the, in, the, in the church of God. We ought to. And the fact that we don't really want to says a lot about where we're at. As soon as we think of that question, we think about how, it also reveals a great deal about where we're at. Verse 36, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. A child, huh? (laughs) There's just a child like standing around. Yes, because there's families following him. The children are, what I love about this, what this implies is that the children are just always there. And it's not the crowd. Who are all these people that are with him? They're disciples. So the disciples' children are there. That's fascinating. And what I like about what it says is he takes a toddler, it says. It's a toddler. And he puts him in the crook of his arm. Right? He takes up Polly, puts him in the crook of his arm. The point of comparison is the insignificance of the child on the honor scale. Children in Jesus' culture had no power, no status, and few rights. Think about this for a moment. Go back in the life of Jesus. They go to Jerusalem, and everybody leaves. How many days was he there before somebody noticed he was gone? Three days. And when they find him, they're not like, oh my gosh, I really hope the Romans don't send CPS to my house. (laughs) They're not like, oh, what have we done? They go and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Now, Now imagine the culture where a child can be gone for three days, and he's still in trouble for it. I know for a fact in Texas, okay, if you're at a gas station and your kids are in the car while the, the, the car is being pumped with gas and you go inside the store, they will come and arrest you. And I know this because I know someone this happened to who'd never been there. They, they didn't live there. They just recently moved there. They go in the gas station. The kids aren't like babies. It's not a hot day. She's pumping the gas. She goes in the place to get a drink, you know, get a Slurpee for herself. She comes out and there's the police. And they arrested her. Now, this is very incongruous to us because we we do live in the age of abortion where we are slaughtering children like nothing else. But those that we actually allow to live, we worship, right? I mean, they have child emancipation laws, which if you don't know what that is, it's where a child wants to to emancipate himself from his parents because his parents, he doesn't think, are doing a good job, right? We have CPS. We have child labor laws. To us, right, it's very difficult for us to understand how insignificant a child is because we worship youth in this culture. All the video games, the music, the culture, everything is laid on the altar of youth. You want to get somewhere as a politician, you got to be for school levies, right? and, and you are just whoring yourself out for the, for the youth vote. I mean, they're even talking about raising or lowering the voting age to 16. Why would they do that? Well, a bunch of immature 16-year-olds 
If I can convince them of free college, free health care, free jobs, right? In Christ's day, the vulnerability of children made them utterly dependent on others for survival. They were forgotten and received no attention in society at all. And so a child is set before the twelve as an example of discipleship. And the fact that the same Aramaic word means child and servant lends to the child's presence the character of a dramatized play. This is just like in Luke, who is the first person who recognizes that Mary is carrying the Lord. It's actually not the mother. It's the baby leaping in the womb. The baby hears Mary's voice and leaps in his womb because that woman is carrying the Savior of the world. The disciples are standing there dumbfounded, they're afraid, and they're quiet. And in the womb is a baby leaping for joy. This is... God's kingdom is not like our kingdom. God's kingdom is not like my kingdom. He puts the child there in the midst of them. because, And then he goes on, he explains it, but, but this echoes some things here that we have already heard. In chapter 6, verse 11, it says, And if any place will not receive you, when the, this is when he's sending the disciples out, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a t- testimony against them. The missional context of chapter 6, verse 7 through 13, provides the key to verse 9, 37, where the child comes in Jesus' name as his representative. And if you receive the child, you receive Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, you receive the Father. There is thus a clear progression in thought from verses 35 to 37, the admonition to become the servant of all, and verse 35 is reinforced by the parabolic action of verse 36. But with the admonition to fulfill the disciples' vocation, becoming one of these children is linked the assurance of identification with Jesus. You want to you want to be known. You want to be great in my kingdom. Become as dependent as this child. Right? They couldn't cast out the demon because they weren't praying. They they weren't. They were showing no, no fear. They were showing no need of the throne of grace and the power from heaven in order to cast out that demon. They were doing it under their own authority. And this is what's happened. God has equipped them, and now they think it's them. They've forgotten that you can do nothing apart from me. You are nothing apart from me. I called you. I equip you. You are living not your best life now, but you're living a life that is marked by the way of the cross. Become, and, and the only way to do it is to become like a little child, because what do little, what do little children do? Right? They come to me every morning and ask me what's for breakfast. And you know what's for breakfast every morning? Cereal. Well, they got to come. they got to find out. Like, I mean, I, I, this is those things about kids that I find fascinating. And you just sit there and you're like, have we forgotten yesterday so quickly? Have we forgotten every morning for the last 12 years? Well, this is the time of the day in which we take a bowl and we put cereal and then we put milk in. But but no, right? This <laughs> this is the other thing is they come now like like I'm the warden in a prison when they're doing chores. Can I go to the bathroom? Well, I don't know. Can you? <laughs> Why don't you go to the bathroom and find out? And this is what kids are like, right? And then what happens when you're you're at the fair and you lose one of them? Do they just stand there silently, stoically? No, they run around. Daddy, 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 where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And the disciples are standing there, and they're confused and lost, and they're not running after him saying, daddy, 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 daddy. They are as unlike little children as they can possibly be. Are you? Are you? Are you like like a little child when it comes to 
to the living God? Are you dependent on him like a little child? Are you trusting of him like a little child? Are you fearful apart from them like a little child would be apart from their parents? In this humility, we receive a child as we would the king himself. There's another side of this where he sends a child in his name. Now, most of us don't, right? In their day, they wouldn't. They wouldn't look for the king of heaven to come to them in a child. Because children are despised. Children are maligned. Children are peripheral. Children are out here. And so a lot of people miss the coming of the Lord because why? Because it comes to them in this kind of, clothed in this kind of humility and lowness. Are you paying attention to God visiting you? God speaking to you? God trying to wake you up? Are you possibly overlooking it because it comes clothed in something as like a child? Even Jesus himself is to be seen in the light of God, his sender, and not as he appears outwardly to the false sense of values of this world, right? A brand new Dodge Charger dropped off at my house at no fee seems like the blessing of God, doesn't it? That seems like God trying to tell me something about how awesome I am. (laughs) Right? But the person whose car is stuck on the side of the road, right? When's the last time we did that? Like, I always just make sure that I look, oh, they have a cell phone. (laughs) Even Jesus himself is to be seen in the light of God, his sender, and not as he appears outwardly to the false sense of values of this world, of which we spend so much time saturating ourselves. For that matter, even with our preconceived notions, even those strongly held beliefs that we already have, our certainties, do we hold them loosely? Do we recognize Jesus pursuing us, visiting us in humble and simple ways to lead us on the way of the cross to himself? Jesus wrestles with us and cripples us in his grace, and the message that Jesus is trying to teach them to teach you from the command of self-renunciation that power comes through prayer. The message for those who want God's grace is that grace hurts. Grace hurts harder than hell. And so we're looking for it in all the wrong places. We're looking to achieve it in all the wrong ways because to us, grace couldn't possibly hurt. And until we are really ready to wrestle with God, to comprehend what this means, we are just standing around in silent, anxious ignorance like the disciples. I've been a Jew my whole life, Peter says. I don't know what this guy's talking about. A child. We live in the times of the Roman emperors. Okay, that's not greatness. Caesar's greatness. He isn't safe. He is good. And so chalk up your hands and get on the mat. Right? This is. Do you want to know what's holding you back? Do you want to know what's frustrating you? Do you want that ignorance and that anxiety and that silence in your life between you and God? It's because you're not willing to get on the mat. You're not willing to be crippled. Earlier in the gospel, Jesus said things to the disciples in code, and they didn't get it. The parables were secret. 
hidden messages which they gradually learned away from the crowds in small group form asking a lot of questions. We, we want to just pick it up and be like, oh, okay. Okay, cool. Mark, there we go. Done. Romans, easy. What was the matter with you, Luther? We want it to be easy. We want it to be safe. We don't want to struggle. They have struggled to get their minds around the fact that he often says things that have a clear meaning on the surface, and yet he wants them to look under the surface and find the hidden thing underneath. And now he tells them something which we, the readers, realize he he means quite literally, and they, not surprisingly, are puzzled because they are looking for hidden meaning and can't find it. They uh, They have no idea how to interpret what he's saying. Sometimes he's saying something very simple, and there's really more to it. Sometimes he's saying something quite simple, and that's all there is to it. And and, and instead of figuring out which is which, they're standing there in ignorant silence. At this stage, we can sympathize with them, can't you? Like, I mean, Jesus, could you just tell them? I don't understand. How hard is it? You're the word of God. Just tell them. Just make it as simple as you possibly can. Why all this complication? Why all this difficulty? Why all this pain? Why couldn't you just come here and snap your fingers and make the whole thing go away? Transform us all into heaven. It's 2,000 years ago that he came out of the grave. Why are we still struggling along? When God is trying to say something to us, how good are we at listening? Is there something in the word of God or something that you've heard in church or something that you sense going on around you through which God is speaking to you? And if so, are you open to it? Are you prepared to have your ways of understanding taken apart so that a new way of understanding can open up instead? A sign that the answer may still be no is if, like the disciples on the road, you are still concerned about your own status and what's in it for you. Likewise, upon hearing that the only way for a crown is the way of the cross, when we discover that grace, that gift that we all long for so desperately, in fact, hurts harder than hell, do we cope with our fear and our ignorance by worrying and snubbing the Lord in silence, distracted by our own status and our own welfare? Then we're not wrestling with him. If we are thinking that we're following Jesus, somehow this will enhance our own prestige, right? Our sense of self-worth, leading naturally to narcissism. The number of people who think the gospel is about them (laughs) and all their little quirkiness. Well, of course he'd save me. (laughs) We want a Christianity in which the gospel messages aren't supposed to make anyone feel bad. They shouldn't, right? No one should ever open their mouth and preach the gospel and make people feel bad. I think that guy needs to go back to seminary. I don't think he knows what he's doing. And here's Jesus. (laughs) The grace hurts, people. The grace hurts. Jesus must have been frustrated and disappointed that the disciples could only worry about their own status when he was trying to lead them further and further up the path of true greatness through humiliation and defeat. Think, this section says that Jesus is teaching them, but it's all one-sided. It says at the very start, he's teaching them, but it's a one-sided conversation with a brick wall. Right? If I ran a classroom like this, I would, they would not let me be a teacher. Well, Mr. Kloss, we came in there and we watched and you were lecturing and everyone's just sitting there in utter silence. We're going to have to let you go. 
right? Because where people are learning, there's interaction. Where people are learning, they're raising their hand and asking questions. People passionately arguing about things. He's teaching them, but it's all one-sided. They've stopped up their ears. For Christ and his disciples in every age, this is all too often the reality. That's the trouble with understanding only half the gospel, the half we want to understand, that if Jesus is the Messiah, then we are royal courtiers in waiting, right? If we're following him and he's the king, what does that make us? I mean, really, what does that make us? And that, that dazzled part there, the part at the end, the part where there's a crown is the thing that we think that's the whole story. Anyone at all associated with Jesus can become the means of access to royalty, even divinity. Oh, you want me to pray for you? I'll pray for you. Right? He's my buddy. Oh, you need me to go to the king of all things and pray for you? This lesson resonates out in the centuries of church history in which so many have thought that being close to Jesus, working for him, obeying him, being amongst his people, made them somehow special. Those who have really understood this message know that things aren't like that. As Jesus goes to the cross, turning upside down everything that his disciples had imagined, he is also turning upside down the way people, including you, think. If we feel sorry for the disciples and their confusion, we should ask ourselves just how confused we ourselves are. Are you anxious? Are you confused? Are you ignorant about what the word of God actually means? Can you spot a messenger of Christ when he comes, or she comes, or it comes? Do you hear a challenge in the word of God? Are you ready to wrestle? Are you ready to be crippled? Are you ready to receive blessing? Because grace awaits you, and it's freely given in abundance. But it hurts. It's painful for your ego and your flesh and yourself. And that's what is inside of you and of you that needs to die. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you do, in fact, wrestle with us even now. We pray, Lord God, that we would not be fearful, that we would not be anxious, that we would not hang back, that we would not be silent. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us eyes to see the messengers that you are sending to us, that you would give us ears to hear those calls to repentance that we so desperately need. We want your grace so bad. We want it so much. And it's our self that holds us back. And we know, we know that you are going to finish what you started in us. And we pray, Lord God, that you wouldn't, we know that you're not going to give up on us. Let us not give up on you. Let us come to you and let us wrestle with you. And, and even as we're crippled, we know that we will taste the goodness of the Lord. Amen.